pediatric speech language pathologist and welcome to teach me to talk the podcast as I always say at the beginning of every show I am so excited to do this show today do this audio video podcast because I am going to talk about what I think can be the defining philosophy or the defining set of skills that all of us as early intervention professionals need to know about communication development. Now this information is from my therapy manual, Let's Talk About Talking, and what we are going to be talking about today is pre-linguistic skills. And so as a therapist, have you ever wanted to have a crystal ball so that you could look and you could accurately predict when you're talking with families when a child is ready to talk? Sometimes families really do think we have a magic wand and they're just going to, if you're doing a home visit, or if you're, even if they're coming to your office, that they're going to sit in the waiting room and that you're going to take their child back. And when you bring him back to them, he's going to be talking. Or they'll say during a home visit, hey, I, I, I'm going to go into the kitchen. And when, by the time I get back, I want you to have him talking. It does not work that way, even though we wish it did. However... There is something that is very, very predictive, and that's looking at the 11 foundational skills that come always, no matter whether a child is uh, talking on time or whose speech language skills are developing normally, or whether we have a late talker or whether we have another kind of medical or developmental diagnosis going on. We can look at these 11 foundational or pre-linguistic skills and really know if talking is going to be something that's a short-term goal or if that's going to be a long-term goal that we need to uh, think about for children, for toddlers who are not yet using words. And so I want to present this information to you today. Now, this is kind of the fast version. We're going to talk about all 11 of these skills in one show. But then I'm really also excited to announce that this is a new series. So we will take then a show or two or, or two skills per show over the next several weeks and really dive into these 11 skills so that you'll know exactly what we are looking for when we are working with children or toddlers with language delays and disorders. So be sure to stay tuned for that because again, today's just the brief overview. It's just to talk about what these 11 skills are. Now, if you are a parent, watching this on YouTube or listening to my podcast, or if you are another kind of professional, so not a speech language pathologist, you may read or hear a term like pre-linguistic and automatically think, oh, I'm out. <laughs> I have no idea what she's talking about here yet, because it is a term that's a part of professional jargon or terminology. And, and it's easy. Pre just means before, and linguistic, of course, means words. So what are the things that have to come in before a child is developmentally ready to talk? And again, this is so important. And I honestly, I blew this the first part of my career for several years because I would go into a family's home, especially when I first began early intervention. And if he wasn't talking, I immediately started pressing and working for words like lots of us still mistakenly or excitedly do when we get a little late talker without really considering is this kid ready to talk is he really really there yet 
what's missing? And for a long time, I didn't really know this. Now, of course, I learned the milestones in grad school like we all do and regurgitated it for the test. And I, unfortunately, God blessed us with three children who had typically developing language skills. So then to go back and look at when these pre-linguistic skills were missing, how how much of an impact that can make. And so that's what I want to do today is talk about these 11 skills, tell you how this looks so that you can accurately determine if this is emerging in a toddler. Also begin to link this to specific diagnoses, which is so important for therapists. And, and honestly, let me just say too, it really doesn't matter what we call something as long as we are working on it, as long as we are addressing it and making sure that, again, we're not just worried about that expressive language piece. As it turns out, so many other skills that you might think as a parent, if you're listening to this, you'll think, I had no idea that even really affected when my child learns how to use words. And so I wanna really talk about how all of these are interconnected, what little diagnoses may be, diagnosis may be looming in the future for a child who is struggling in one of these areas. And we'll again, get to the treatment piece or get to the strategy piece in upcoming shows. But today we're really just going to uh, look at an overview and look at diagnostics. All right, so let's start with skill number one. What is the very first pre-linguistic skill that we look for in all toddlers? It's that they can react to events in the environment. Now, what does that mean? That means that a baby, a toddler notices what's going on around him or her, and then that he or she is actively exploring that, and then the culmination of this skill is that they begin to react to that. So in, let's just take a typically developing baby, or even a baby who, again, has some kind of medical or neurological diagnosis. How do we know that he or she is reacting to the environment? It means that he or she does something when he can see something, hear something, feel something, taste something, or when movement is involved with that. So how does he react to incoming sensory information? And this is the initial milestone we look for in all children. And let me just say, children who have sensory impairments like blindness or visual impairments, or if there's a hearing loss, will naturally be at a disadvantage for reacting because they're not processing, even though they're seeing the same information and hearing the same information, because of those differences in how their physical bodies work, this will be a tougher milestone for them to achieve. This milestone also indicates when there are not visual impairments or hearing impairments, or again, another diagnosable um, condition that usually a physician has identified, when we still see that a child doesn't have a reason to not react, we know there's a significant problem. We know that brain development is not moving along as we would expect it to be. And again, this could be something that happened in utero, it could be something that happened at birth, it could be something that happened after birth. But this is the very first thing that we're looking for. And I'll just be really honest, it's the most significant. And so if, we ha if you have a toddler or a baby who is, is six months, honestly, I would say four months old, <laughs> three months old, and not really reacting to events in his environment. He's not looking for noises or startling when he hears noises. He's not trying to handle uh, 
toys and rattles and in little cloth books and he's not really really tracking people across the room that is a very big developmental red flag and so we want to always be sure that we are addressing it as such you know reacting to environments uh, environmental events also is the foundation for cognition now what does cognition mean it really talks about uh parents usually talk about this in terms of how smart a kid is but really I like to define cognition as how a child thinks learns remembers and pays attention and again we first get the the first little inklings of cognitive development when we look at how infants and babies respond to events in their environment all right so that is skill number one and responding again is the foundation for communicating so first we've kind of looked at the things in the environment how does a child respond to things next and kind of uh, so closely interrelated and so closely connected would be skill number two how does a child respond to people and this really means how does a child respond to people when we are trying to get him or her to interact with us why is this important and, and again this is this is one of just kind of these bedrock philosophies and if you are a therapist you need to say this over and over and over when you first start to work with a family so that they really get it especially when there are problems when their child is not consistently responding when there are problems with the interaction communicating always involves at least two people and so when we have a child that's not as aware of other people who seems to avoid who seems to self-isolate who in, who seems to enjoy objects more than he enjoys being around people sometimes even children who are extremely shy initially parents sort of look at that as a personality or a temperament difference when honestly there are developmental issues going on with that and so we really really want to be sure that a child is interacting and engaged when you're talking to him and so again what does that mean that means he's smiling that means he's looking at you that means he's responding in some way he may not be using words yet but he is listening to what you're saying to him hopefully he's beginning to follow some directions I hope that he's vocalizing back to you even if he's not using intelligible words yet but he gets hey you are talking to me and this is important to me and I'm focused on you and and understand uh, again that that basic tenet of communicating with that back and forth piece there so we also want children to again with responding they need to enjoy it <laughs> they need to like people and this is so important especially for our little friends who go on to be diagnosed with autism more than anything autism is a difference in how children respond socially to other people and with their communicative attempts and with respond with receiving so the input the receptive language piece how are they processing what's said to them that always kind of goes back to were they initially engaged were they initially interacting with a wide variety of people not just mom not just mom and dad not just mom and one of their siblings a wide circle of people so that's one of the things that we really 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 want to look for with children and when um, when kids aren't doing that when they are disconnected again that relationship is not forming with other people kids really really learn from from a well-established loving connections where they consistently interact so when we see kids that are doing their own thing and self-isolating we really really get concerned about language development we almost always know that they are going to be 
light talkers or, or have that language delay or, or honestly autism is a language disorder. Children are, have things that are not typically noted in normal speech language development. So responding to people, critical, critical skill. And again, will a kid respond to his name? Will he look at you when you're talking to him? Does he seem to avoid? Does he seem to ignore language? Um, and again, it might be the case where a kid seems to interact pretty well with his family at home, but not very many other people. That's a problem. And we want to treat it like that and get in there and get that uh, responsiveness strengthened. But I'm, I'm getting into intervention like I always do instead of keeping this about diagnostics today. So that was the second prelinguistic skill. Does a child respond to people when they talk or play with him? And we really, really want to see that and see that a child understands that uh, reciprocity or that back and forth piece. So that was skill number two. Skill number three is also really important. I mean, they all are, <laughs> but this is just like the next little rung. And if you are looking at this purely from a developmental uh, standpoint, you're look, you're th might be starting to think about sequence. Do all of these skills come in in this exact order that we're talking about? And my best answer for this is kinda. <laughs> they kinda do. Um, but really, really, all of these 11 skills, sometimes therapists will read the manual and they'll say, could I have a more definitive listing of when these milestones are achieved? And I always say, all of these are coming in by 12 months. And so if we look at a child who is right on the verge of turning one or right after one, he or she should have already acquired all of these things. So don't get so picky about saying, well, this is four months and this is six months and this is nine months. Don't think about it in terms like that. And, and let me say this too. If you are the parent of a child who is four and not talking and six and not talking, or if you're a therapist who works with these kinds of children routinely, you know, what I say to parents about this is, hey, later is better than not at all. So don't get too upset unless, again, let me just say, if this is your first uh, investigatory venture looking at what's going on with your child and if you, I, you are, I know, I know that your heart is breaking right now and you're thinking, oh my goodness, I really didn't understand how, how far behind he is or what a big deal this is. Try not to let yourself get so caught up in that because intervention, again, is really the most important thing. And remember what I said at the beginning, it's not really important in this earliest developmental phase exactly what we call a diagnosis for a child or the reason that we talk about late talking. What's most important is what are we doing about it? How can we improve it? How can we help that child begin to uh, strengthen his or her communicative skills, communication skills. So let's kind of think about that as we move forward. All right, this is the next little skill. Skill number three, it's begins turn-taking. Now, sometimes when you talk to a parent about turn-taking, they kind of get a glazed over look and they're thinking something like, well, if he doesn't share or my child doesn't take turns in a game, a board game, that's not what we're talking about. We are talking about a child's ability to, again, looking at the first two skills, reacts to events in the environment, or what does he do when he's, when he's processing things that he sees and hears and feels and tastes and things as he moves along, and how does he respond to people. This is the next natural extension, is that a child will begin to do his part during uh, 
this kind of interaction. And so begins taking turns with you is that he participates in extended back and forth exchanges with other people. So it could be for a baby who is really first learning how to coo, or let's say it's a little bit further along. Cooing is usually at that three-month level, four-month level, five-month level. Let's say it's a kid, a uh, baby who's a little further along, like six months, eight months, and they start to do some little things like clearing their throat <coughs> or a, a kind of a fake cough. <coughs> they'll hear you do something like that, and then they'll do it, or they'll do it, and then they anticipate that you're going to imitate them. And so how long will they keep that going? How many turns can they take? with um, that back and forth thing. And so again, it may not even, it may be something nonverbal. It may be something like a game of give me five. Do you hold out your hand and the child gives you five? And then will he do that repeatedly with you? Hopefully he starts to hold out his hand and then realizes, oh my goodness, she can hit my hand too. I don't always have to be the responder here. And we're going to talk about initiating at the end. That's skill number 11. But this is how this progresses. They start to participate in these longer back and forth exchanges. So why is this important? Turn taking is how all of us truly become interactive and how all of us become conversational. So when a child begins to use words, we want him to understand that he talks and then you talk and then he talks and then you talk. That's the conversation piece. And kids have to learn all of these skills that we're talking about when, when we're uh, referring to a cognitive skill. They have to learn all of these things non-verbally first. So again, that's, that's what we're talking about here in this earliest developmental period is they get that, oh, my, if, if my mom slaps the table, I can imitate her and slap the table back. If she uh, is patting, when she's uh, giving me a bottle, and she pats my bottle, I'm going to try to pat my bottle back. Or I pat the bottle as a baby, and then mom pats it, and then the baby realizes it like, oh, this is a really cool game. I'm going to keep this going. Or something like raspberries. That's a, the best example ever, where you blow with the baby, and then they blow back, and then you blow, and they blow. And so we want to see those turns, again, increasing. At the beginning, it may just be a turn or two and then a child loses interest or moves on to something else or you know something happens. But we certainly wanna keep that going for several turns. And so if when we have a one-year-old or a two-year-old who's not doing very much of that, we really do worry about autism that we talked about back in skill number two because really the foundational piece that's missing there is interaction. I'm not responding to other people and I don't realize that I have to keep that going and that I can stay connected here long enough to really, 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 again, get that reciprocity, that reciprocalness of with, um, again, I take a turn, you take a turn, I take a turn, you take a turn. So great skill to look for. And as speech-language pathologists, we don't always talk about that enough with parents. We don't always say, you know, when he's playing with a toy, I really don't see him ever really trying to get you to do something with that toy, too. He's pretty self-focused with this and pretty self-driven. So the turn-taking piece is a super, super skill to work on with kids. And boy, it's, it's a little harder than you think it would be. And we're not going to talk about those strategies today. But I do want to give you some tips because I think once we start to incorporate this with our youngest clients or with our most significantly impacted clients, you can make a pretty big difference with that when parents understand. Even something like trading a little object, you know, if I give him 
uh, this top to my water bottle? Will he try to give it back? Or when he's holding it, if, if I hold up my hand, will he try to give it back to me? Those are critical skills for helping children learn how to interact with other people and begin to communicate. So that was skill number three, begins turn-taking. And again, without this skill, kids won't be conversational. They will not understand that talking in and communicating is a two-way street. So we have to really, really make sure that we are targeting that and working on that just as, as focused and intentionally as we do when we start to work on saying words. We've got to get that turn-taking piece down too. All right, skill number four, and this is a biggie as well, develops a longer attention span. All right, so I know that as I am saying this, <laughs> some of you are wondering what's longer? What's the guideline here? I have a kid who really can't sit with me for more than a few seconds. All right, it's longer than that. The, the evidence-based recommendation that we make with this is that a toddler will be able to stay with an activity for three to six minutes, so about five minutes, and then after that, he may require adult uh, interaction or, or focus to keep that his attention focused on that activity, so for about five minutes. So for some of you right now, you're listening, if you're a parent and hearing that about your child and you're thinking, well, he, you know, he can watch a whole hour show. That's, that's, his attention's pretty good. Don't count screen time on this. <laughs> really look at how he or she is playing with traditional toys. Look at how he or she is interacting and will stay with you like during a social game kind of session where you start and you're playing peekaboo and you're playing patty cake and you're doing some tickles and then you might go back to peekaboo. Can he stay with you for about five minutes during that time? And when we have kids who can't do that, it's a really big red flag and the reason is all of us need the ability to sustain our focus. That deep thinking, deep learning does not happen unless we have a decent attention span. And it, I, I've said this a lot, I haven't said it on recent shows, but I used to talk about it a lot and it really is uh, kind of one of the catchphrases in Let's Talk About Talking, is attention is a gatekeeper skill. So what does that mean? It means it comes first. And if we don't have a kid who can really attend and can really stay with you while you're trying to teach him something, he's not gonna get it. He's, he's, he's not going to learn it because he's busy and he's distracted. And so lots of our little friends who we see for speech therapy who are just bouncing off the walls, a lot of times we think about those as sensory regulation issues or sensory processing issues and those things are true but the bottom line skill that's missing with those children would be developing that ability to focus or that longer attention span and so we want to be sure that we're seeing it again five minutes about five minutes with toddlers so about five minutes with a one or two year old and then uh if they're over two three and above we expect that to be even longer so we have to really really again talk to parents about that of course ADD ADHD it's a diagnosis that a lot of parents would expect us to talk about but children are not diagnosed with that until they are school age and I certainly agree with that it really is more of an academic diagnosis and here we are looking at it more as a sensory regulation or sensory processing issue in that they are not settled enough <laughs> within their bodies, within, and I talk about this all the time, their internal noise is so loud 
that they, and what I mean by that is just their drive to move, their drive to run, or um, the other way, they are so internally focused that they can't really process any internal any external information coming in, and so they do look a little bit shut down and a little bit withdrawn. And those kids have just as much difficulty paying attention because again, they are under responding. So it could go either way with this. And so be sure that you're looking at that and talking with parents about that. You know, and I'm paying more and more and more attention to this the longer I do this job as a pediatric speech pathologist specializing in toddlers. When we do a lot of chasing kids and or, or as parents punishing children when they're not really listening. And you know, that, that's, that's not what we wanna do. We wanna figure out what, what's going on with them. What, why, why can't they sit and listen? What is it? If, what strategies can I introduce right here that makes that a more realistic goal? Because again, you've gotta get that attention piece under control and well-established long before we expect kids to understand what words mean and certainly long before they start to use those words to communicate effectively. So look at that attention piece and, and think about that and think about uh, when you're working with a late toddler, uh, late talking toddler, you know, is this something that's a factor? And if it is, again, you've got to address this just as specifically as you do your language goals. All right, so that is skill number four, develops a longer attention span. All right, skill number five is shifts and shares joint attention with others. Lots of therapists think about this and just call it joint attention, but the problem with that is parents have no idea what you're talking about. And they may actually think you're talking about skill number four, but here joint attention, again, is that next little rung up. It's that next layer. Joint attention is how a child shares an experience with you. Can he shift his attention between an object that he's focused on back to you and back to the object? You know, we always talk about a triad of attention, with joint attention, meaning that again, you are sharing an experience with a child. He is with you and you may both be looking at the water bottle and talking about the water bottle, but a lot of times we mistake our narration for what a kid is doing and think that he's including us when he's not including us. So we wanna have a lot of evidence that a child, again, knows that we're there, cares that we're there, and that we are participating and sharing that experience between the three of us. And so again, why is this super important? Because a child has to learn language by listening to you and then looking at what you're talking about. It does him absolutely no good if, if he is uh, if you are talking about something and he has no idea, his attention is off focused on something else. And so this joint attention piece where we are both looking at, talking about, thinking about the same thing is how children really begin to assign meaning to words. So really, really important skill to look at. Our little friends who go on to be diagnosed with autism, again, because we've talked about um, that core issue of not reacting or not responding to other people, not consistently uh, wanting to um, engage their attention on what a person is doing rather than something else in their environment. You know, that's when we really start to worry about joint attention. And it is one of the things that we should really, really be talking about with parents and working on uh, with children. It really, you know, lots of times, one of the first strategies will 
tell a parent is narrate what a child is doing in everyday activities and so we tell them to talk but if a kid isn't really looking at what they're talking about or paying attention to what a parent's talking about all that language is just blah 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 in the background uh, when I used to t teach this course, the early speech language development taking theory to the floor when I taught that live the example that I used was you know it sounds like a Charlie Brown teacher wah 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 in the background and and uh, audiences <laughs> There are younger and younger and younger therapists in uh, these audiences, and some of them don't even know who Charlie Brown is, so they don't get that whole analogy of that uh, very famous uh, cartoon strip that, and again, uh, on TV, those little holiday specials. And so you'll have to really talk to parents about uh, and really make more specific recommendations rather than just narrate what you're doing because if a child isn't focused on the same things, a lot of that language is lost. And so we've got to get that attention piece and where they are sharing that experience firmly established first, then you can start to really think about language and think about um, think about how you can help a kid learn how to understand words and then use words. Another kicker here is with joint attention when we're talking about that and looking at that is a child's ability to follow a point. So when you are pointing to something, can he look at that? Does he scan his environment to try to figure out what is mama talking about? What is this lady trying to get me to do? And so that super, super uh, way to gauge that just with, and therapists, you already know this, but for our parents who are listening on the podcast or who are watching via YouTube, just to be able to say, look, and then point and really do a focused look somewhere and see if your child responds to that. If he doesn't, that's a big red flag. And so again, you've got to uh, once he's about after nine or ten months old and so you really want to help a child uh, begin to be able to do that now I talked a lot about pointing that was the whole uh, topic of show number 384 so the last podcast I did and we were really doing that in the context of children learning how to point because it's a gesture but there's also some information in, in that show about helping a child learn how to follow your point so if you need some strategies for that you don't want to wait until we do this show about joint attention for strategies go back and listen to or watch show number 384 for some tips for that and um, as I have been talking about here, joint attention is so important for language development because it is how kids begin to assign meaning to words and how they, uh, uh, they start to learn and start to really uh, uh, link what you're saying with what's going on. So it's the very foundational skill for receptive language or language comprehension. So that was skill number five. Next skill, skill number six, plays appropriately with a variety of toys. So why in the world is playing related to language development? Well, play is how kids learn just about everything, especially our cognitive skills, our language skills. Certainly they get motor practice with that, but we have to really, really think about play as one of the foundational pieces for uh, beginning to communicate. And sometimes parents really don't get that connection 
they'll say things like, my child just doesn't like toys. And that's, that's not ever really it, guys. It's really not. It's um, really linked to, they don't, it's not that they don't like the toys, they don't understand the toy. And so we really want children to be able, and toddlers, to be able to play with a variety of toys and play appropriately. And what I mean by that is, if a kid is a spinner, <laughs> he likes to spin lots of different objects, and he spins the ball, which isn't too bad, but he also spins the baby doll, and he spins the brush, for the baby doll, and then he also spins his cars and thinks there's never, there's not a lot of functional or traditional or recognizable expected play going on, and so that that's not really we, we can't really count that. We can't really count that as a playing with a variety of toys. And a lot of times parents get a little bit confused about that. They won't understand that we really do want children to do what an object is intended for or what's expected so that just means with a car what would a kid do he's going to roll a car he's going to throw kick or roll a ball uh, when he sees a, a hat a dress-up hat he knows to put it on his head you know this links closely with uh, functional object use too and I, I just did another show about that with the seven steps for developing pretend play skills and what we do when we start with pretend play is that we go all the way back to this level where we are looking at what does a kid do? Can he play appropriately with lots of different toys? And if he can't, we teach him how to do it because it's that important. And we want him learning, again, all of the cognitive or prerequisite skills that go into that. Does he understand size? Does he understand uh, constructional relationships? Does he understand that he can build with Legos? Does he understand that when he knocks the blocks down that they all scatter and he has to gather them back up? Does he understand with a push-button toy that he has to use his finger to push it? It won't operate another way. Can he do some decent problem-solving with, say, like a toy house or a barn? It, especially when it's unexpected. If the door pushes instead of pulls open, does he remember that? Or does he have to start over every time and, and try over and over and over and over again to pull the door when he's really supposed to be pushing it? So how is he showing that he remembers these things, that he's learning, that he changes his behavior based on what did or did not work the first time that he tried to play with that toy. And so really important milestone to look at. There are stages of play that we want children to be experiencing. And again, none of those things can happen. None of, and, and, and let me just say too, pretend play is so closely linked to language development. And so when we have a kid who's, who's back at this level, who's not playing with a variety of toys functionally, they are really, really missing out on lots of opportunities for learning. So even speech pathologists who are working on words, who are working on language, need to really pay close attention to a child's pretend play skills. And sometimes this, our, our little, especially our little friends with autism, will get super fixated on one toy or one kind of toy to the exclusion of other things. And sometimes moms will just say, you know, this is just a little phase he's in, or this is, he just likes this and he really, he really just doesn't like anything else. And again, that's a red flag. We want them to have some variety so that they are doing a, a, a lot of different motor actions. And again, this is one of those areas where Unless we really take a look at it, we might miss something with the child, and we really know that, you know, or, or we talk about, we think about, or I hope we do, as early intervention professionals, you know, does motor drive cognition, or does cognition drive motor skills, you know, and again, no 
a child does not have a chance of being a functional communicator if all these little cognitive skills aren't coming into play first. Simple problem solving, cause and effect, uh, object permanence, those basic cognitive skills, those basic foundations. Those are the kinds of things that we work on in early play with children. And so you can already see that link there between early play skills and language development. So we wanna be sure that we are talking to parents about that. We're talking about all the things that children can miss out on when they aren't good players, when they just spend most of their time watching a screen or, or moving, they're just constantly in motion, they're too busy to play. Sometimes parents will talk about, so we really wanna connect that so parents understand how important uh, play skills are for language uh, acquisition. All right, that was skill number six. Skill number seven is receptive language. So how does a child understand early words and follow simple directions. Now here, I mean, I, I say this all the time too, I believe that receptive language delays are the most overlooked delays in early intervention. And why is that? Because parents automatically think, my child understands, what do they say? Everything. When, and, and we will hear a parent say that and we'll take it at face value and then we start to interact with the child and, and maybe do our initial assessment and we realize that the child follows no simple commands. And parents, what do they do? They chalk that up to what? Behavior. They think he just he's stubborn, he's lazy, he doesn't want to do it, he's not listening to you, he's a stinker, you know, whatever else they say about that when really there's an underlying receptive language problem. Now for parents who are watching or listening, what is receptive language? It's how we receive the language, how we understand the words that we hear other people use. And children must understand words before they begin to use those words to talk. And so again, a super foundational skill here when we want, want we're just, eagerly awaiting those first words from a late talking toddler and then we realize well my goodness he, he's not he's not following any directions he's when i tell him to go get his cup he just blows me off when i say where are your shoes he has no idea what i'm talking about when i say oh you love your book go get your book let's look at your book together he doesn't want to do that or he doesn't do that and again the want to piece uh, it's, it's so hard to gauge that with toddlers because they do want to do their own thing and they are notoriously um, independent sometimes with their agenda is all that matters but you've got to see evidence of a child following directions before we can give him credit for this skill so even basic things like give me whatever he's holding give me the ball and we really want to have that where we're not providing gestural cues where he's just getting it from the auditory information or what he hears you say alone so that that uh, we know again he's learning how to understand your words and not rely on visual cues so other kinds of things that we want to look for here we do want a child completing many different simple requests consistently not just well he he did he he I said, are you hungry? And he ran to the kitchen one time two weeks ago on Tuesday morning, but that's it. That's, he does, we can't give him credit for that. We can't really think that that's enough. We've got to see some consistency here and some frequency before we'll give a child credit for that. And a lot of times when I get 
emails back from parents who bought Let's Talk About Talking. That's one of the things that they say is, I didn't understand how important consistency is. And so if a child just does something every once in a while, that's an emerging skill. And again, oh, so much better than never. But at the same time, we need to take these skills and really strengthen them so that we make all these skills strong and stable. Now that little phrase, I wish it were my own, but it's not. It's from a speech pathologist named Dr. James McDonald. And I just love that analogy is we've got to have all 11 of these skills firmly established before we expect to hear words. And I forgot to say this at the beginning, but I want to go ahead and throw it in now. And I'll probably repeat it at the end so that you understand it. But if any one of these skills, any one of these 11 foundational skills is missing or super, super weak, a child is possibly will be a late talker. So if you're listening to this and are a parent with a 14 month old and a six or a 16 month old and you're thinking, well, he's not really that late yet, but you realize, oh my goodness, he doesn't do four or five of these things. That, this is a, it's a big deal. When, when a child is missing even a couple of these skills, a language delay is likely, meaning that you are not gonna hear words in that expected, those first words in that expected window of 12 to 15, 12 to 16 months. And then if there are several skills missing, a lifelong communication disorder is really, really um, a possibility for those kids when, when so many of these things are missing. And so I don't want this to be lost on you. And I don't want to, again, as I said at the beginning, if you are a parent and you are just beginning to try to find information about helping your baby, you know, I wish I could just reach out and grab you right now and give you a big hug and say, you know, hang in there, keep looking, keep searching, keep trying here. But at the same time, we can't gloss over the seriousness or the significance of these kinds of issues. And as therapists who are frontline professionals here, we are often the primary point that, a, that the primary point of contact that a parent has. They see us a lot more often than they see a pediatrician or any other kind of uh, maybe a specialist, some other kind of medical specialist that they're involved with because of their child we're there you know weekly a couple times a month we're or if they're coming to see us that often or every day if you're in some kind of school or agency programming where you have the luxury of seeing children all the time so we have to really share this information with parents so that they are being super super realistic and super informed about what's going on with their child it always kind of blows me away when i meet a child at three who's not walking whose parents really don't understand the implications of that who really don't get how significantly behind uh, that child is and who and that that no one has ever said hey if your child's not walking I mean, talking is going to be a lot harder because these, this developmental sequence here really is fairly predictable. And again, there are some special situations or some special, di special diagnoses, but at the same time, as therapists, we have to be super, super honest with sharing this information with parents so that they really get it. And it kind of takes the pressure off you as a therapist when you know that talking is going to be a long-term goal, you know, and you feel like parents are saying tick-tock, tick-tock, where are the words, lady? <laughs> you know, again, you've got some validation here and you've got some things to talk about when you're saying, you know, of these 11 skills, I really see weakness in eight of these. You know, we have a lot of work to do here before, before talking is a realistic goal. And so, again, you're not going to want to be depressing about that or 
you pull the rug out from under a parent, but at the same time, you do want to be honest and you do want to be objective. All right, so that was skill number seven where we were talking about receptive language, and it was important because a child has to understand words before he or she can use those words to begin to communicate. All right, let's move on and look at skill number eight. This is vocalizes or makes sounds purposefully. So why is that important? Because no kid talks until he or she is first noisy. All right, so until he or she begins to intentionally and purposefully use his or her little voice. And this makes a lot of sense to us as therapists, really as any adult when we're thinking, um, you know, we really, this, this child is just super, super, super quiet. We've got to get him talking first. But let me just say, parents don't always realize how quiet their kids are. They'll say, and you know when I find out about it, th this happened this morning. I saw a little uh, wonderful family this morning. I just adore this family. But one of the things that dad said during the visit is, we've noticed that he's making a lot more noise now. And you know, when I first saw them, I'm not sure that they would have classified their child as quiet. I mean, they may have, and this just might be a slip in my memory. But a lot of times parents don't even realize it until a kid starts to really make a lot of noise and vocalize. And thankfully, this little guy's well on his way to talking, and he's, he's talking a lot now, using even, you know, a lot of phrases and things. So it's very obvious. But even pre-vocal, even pre-verbal, or, or before, pre-linguistic, <laughs> before kids start to talk, they should really be noisy. We should hear babbling. We should hear lots of uh, just noise, even just little as as they are intentionally learning how to use their voices to get your attention. And so you've got to really think about that. And it's not that they cry with the voice and that's enough or yell with the voice and that's enough. We've got to hear a lot of vocal play and they have to be doing it very, very intentionally. One thing that we always see in new talkers and in kids who are really, really learning how to communicate is the, the amount of practicing that we hear really starts to shoot through the roof. So this is, parents will tell me that they hear them more on the monitor at night when their child is in their crib. And if they don't, if they are real, have really good sleep hygiene habits and they put their kid down when they're awake instead of already knocked out. But they'll hear their kids start to practice. Or when their child wakes up in the morning and before they go in to get him, they'll hear them jabbering or babbling, whatever they want to call it. Or maybe in the car, the parents will start to really hear that their kid is making a lot more noise in the car seat back there. And so you want to hear that and want to talk about that with parents. And as a therapist, you know, if you feel like, oh, I only hear this kid vocalize two or three times during the whole visit, oh my goodness, that is something you should really be talking to parents about and saying, we've got to get him noisy. I've got to hear a lot more vocalizations from him and early play sounds. And, you know, we it, it, this happens before words. We can't even think about words yet because we don't have noise yet. And so that's a great way to explain that to parents. And so, and also the the... Per, the child using his voice purposefully and intentionally, we have to have communicative intent. So you have to have a kid who's whining, not full out crying or screaming, but a kid who really knows, I can whine, I can protest a little bit and get some kind of response from my parents. If he's not doing that before he has words, there's no way that he's going to just wake up one morning and start talking in sentences. It does not happen. It may have happened 
a few little times throughout the course of human history. <laughs> but it does not routinely happen. And guys, parents expect it. They're, they're, they're always praying and, and hoping and wishing, you know, tomorrow's going to be different. You know, we're going to wake up tomorrow and this language delay is going to be over and we can forget about all this therapy and I'm just going to go in and have a completely different child than I had last night when I put him to sleep. And if you don't believe that parents hope and wish and pray for that, then, then stop and take a, take a minute and really, really think about that and really think about how we need to be saying to them, you know, we got to get noise first. We're not going to hear a lot of words yet because it's not really noisy enough yet. And we're going to talk about how to, how to get them noisy and how to facilitate that vocal play. But I want to be sure that we are addressing that and talking with uh, parents about that so that they understand it. All right, now let's move on to skill number nine. And again, this is huge, and I've said that about every skill now. But that's how important all these kids' skills are. The next one is, will the child imitate? When a kid is not talking, it almost always means he's not imitating. And guess what? Imitating does not begin just with imitating words. And so if you are the parent of a late talker and you feel like you are just in your child's face all the time saying, say mama, tell me mama, oh mama, say mama. And you were just waiting and waiting and waiting and waiting for that word. And again, as therapists, if we're not thinking about that moms are doing that, if that's the one word they want to hear more than anything, and they are just really 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 focused on that and they have tried and tried and tried and tried and tried and the kid really isn't imitating that yet we can't leave them at that place we've got to talk to parents about backing up and working on imitation at easier earlier levels and so it's not just imitating words it's will they imitate actions we start with actions with toys then are they going to move up a little bit and imitate actions with their body and first it's gross motor actions and then we have fine motor actions that they imitate so like and those little body actions become gestures like waving like pointing like shaking your head for yes and no uh, those kinds of skills that we want to see why is this important because toddlers learn how to talk by repeating what they hear other people say and so when we have children who aren't imitating we know that that very basic level basic way that children learn how to talk is disrupted and so we need to get that going so children or toddlers should routinely be copying you and not just what you say but also what you do and that's one of the biggest predictors of language delay too is that a child isn't imitating uh, daily routines that he sees his parents doing. So by 18 months, we want children really imitating things like housework activities and really like if, if daddy's out cutting the grass, we want a child to, you know, want to try to cut the grass too with his own little lawnmower. Or when daddy's in the bathroom, we want kids trying to be in the bathroom and doing it just like daddy does. And so think about those things as, as, a, as a mom. If you're wiping off the table after a meal, we want you to see your toddler if you give them a wipe to try to do that too. Or pretend like they are dusting or whatever little housework activity uh, that they've seen you do repeatedly. We want children to be able to do that. And that's one of the markers that I'll ask parents, you know. Uh, we as practicing speech language pathologists or other kinds of therapists, I bet you're like me and when people realize what you do, they start to pick your brain to get information from you and so they'll say, hey, I don't know if my child's a late talker or not, 
I, I don't know if he or she has enough words. And so a lot of times we go straight to, well, how many words does she say? And we ask those kinds of questions when really the things that I've started asking about now are how well does he or she imitate or how does he copy what he sees you do or what she hears you say and so things like that and how does a child and we'll talk about this it's skill number 10 how does a child use early gestures and actually those two things imitating what he sees you do and say and using gestures those are the questions that i ask now because those actually give me more important information sometimes moms will count every word that they've ever sort of thought that they might have heard a child say and so they may say to you well goodness she has 30 different words when she really only uses one or two words and when she's not doing a lot of gestures and not doing a lot of other imitation and that paints a totally different developmental profile and developmental picture than we would if, if we had asked does she imitate your words and mom says no and then you say does she imitate any kind of little housework thing does she imitate any gestures? Will she wave bye-bye back to you when you when she says you do it? And so when she, when a, if a mom's saying not really or every once in a while, again, that makes us feel a lot different about a child than we would had she, you know, she's saying 20 words or whatever. But you get my point on that. So imitating actions, gestures, sounds, and words. And that's how kids learn how to talk. They imitate. And let me say, too, I haven't mentioned this. Sometimes parents will do a lot of screen time, hoping, praying, that that works to help their child learn how to talk. And we always have to really reinforce with parents that it's better to get that one-on-one, -on -one, real-time interaction with a real person in front of them and not from a screen. Because we do want that person-to-person, face-to-face interaction. And a child may pick up something like colors or letters or numbers or shapes from screen time. And I'm not bashing all screen time. You know, I have a couple of videos for kids that are, I think are really good. <laughs> and we wanna do more. So I'm not bashing that. And certainly in this, in this technologically driven world, you know, everybody does screen time all the time, but you can't just leave a parent there thinking, well, I put him in front of, uh, he, he watches YouTube videos all day, educational, I just I have a playlist for him and he just watches video after video after video. And parents think that they're doing the right thing. And so we have to tell them that working and talking with their child one-on-one -on -one always trumps anything they could do with the screen. So make sure you're passing that information along too. So that was skill number nine imitates actions, gestures, sounds, and words. All right, now let's look at skill number 10, and I've already told you a little bit about it. Uh, and this one is uses early gestures like waving and pointing. Now we talked about imitating gestures back in skill nine, and that's important because kids are always gonna imitate what they see you do or what they hear you say first before they start to do it spontaneously or on their own. But this is just that next extension. In skill number nine, children were imitating early gestures like waving bye-bye, like clapping, even something really simple like a give me five. Uh, they were doing that in skill number nine, and now in skill number 10, they're using those early gestures on their own. 
and I already talked about how predictive and how important gestural development is for typical language development. You know, there's a great website called First Words Project, and it's by um, Dr. Amy Weatherby's group, and she at uh, Florida State University, and she talks a lot about with we, we want kids to have 16 different gestures by 16 months. So if you are a pediatric speech pathologist and you are evaluating a child today who's 27 months and you ask about gestures and mom says, well, he doesn't really wave bye-bye. I mean, every once in a while or no, he doesn't really point. You know, I, I kind of always want to say close the book. He qualifies and you've got your very first goal there. <laughs> you've got to get gestures going. It's, it's, it's always precedes verbal words with kids unless there may be some motoric things that again these are going to kind of be our outliers but with other children or with most children gestures always come before words come so why is this important again it's because of that predictive piece and also all of us use gestures and nonverbal communication to communicate with other people all day long our whole lives uh, we talked a lot about this in the last podcast in 384 with how important pointing is and how we use that skill throughout our lifetimes and so it certainly starts here and let me just say a lot of parents will ask when should gestures emerge it is a big, big red flag for kids who are older than 12 months if they are not using gestures. And so again, as a, as a speech language pathologist who works with kids who are two and three and four, and you're not seeing a ton of that, that is just your biggest red flag ever. And we've got to share that, that concern with parents and say, you know, not, he's not ready to really work on words yet. We've got to get this communication piece going first non-verbally. And for a lot of kids who aren't doing gestures, there's some other skills missing on this list. And you'll be able to pair that and talk about the importance of, again, how all these things can kind of come in together and how they are all interrelated and connected. But that's a big one. Skill number 10, uses early gestures like waving and pointing. And so uh, not to get too much into the strategy piece, but before kids can really use a lot of those early gestures on their own, they have to see those gestures. So if you're a parent and you're thinking, how in the world am I going to start on this? I feel overwhelmed. You know, and you've thought, you're thinking, I have really tried to work on waving bye-bye and he's just not getting it yet. You've still got to model it and you've still got to think about how can I make this easier? What are some easier, earlier things that I can work on? And so back up to do that and, and, and look at that look at, and look at other kind of early gestures. And again, go back and listen to podcast 384 for uh, some ideas. All right, here we are, skill number 11, the very last skill. This one is initiates interaction with others to get needs met or to play. So this is, the, this is a real big pragmatic or language use milestone that again I don't think gets enough attention we talked about the responding piece way back at skill number two and then also with turn taking with skill number three but now we're really looking at can a child do the first step with that and we've, we've said communicating always always requires two people we want a kid to be able to take the lead and how is this important for language development because we cannot always depend on other people to read our minds and know what we want now we as mothers and as therapists who've worked with children for a long time we get pretty good at anticipating needs but when we do that we really take away a child's ability to again 
be an independent communicator. And so we want children who are able to to begin that process, who even non-verbally, like we talked about before in skill number eight with vocalizing, can they make a sound on purpose to attract your attention? Can they do something to let you know, do something very deliberately to let you know that they need to get your attention? And again, it might be to have a need met, but it might just be to play or have some social interaction, or it might be to get some comfort from you. So we really have to look at that initiation piece. And kids who are on the spectrum, the autism spectrum, have a lot of difficulty with initiating. Our kids with uh, cognitive development issues sometimes have difficulty initiating. And again, it's not that they don't cry or that they don't do something, but can you see that, to let a parent know, but can you see how, again, all of that communicative burden falls on the adult. And as adults, we should be super intuitive with children. We should be constantly looking at them and assessing, how can I meet their needs? Why is he crying? Why is he distressed? What, what is going on with him? What can I do? What is he telling me? But it, around that, that, as a child approaches that one year birthday, we should really see him or her start to initiate or, or take the lead in communicating more. And again, it'll, it, it happens where parents have interpreted everything as a child was an infant and then they start to notice, aha, she's trying to get my attention more. She's doing it with eye gaze. She's making a noise. She's using a gesture to get my attention. And so that's what we want to see. All right, so those were the 11 skills that emerged before toddlers really uh, start to use words on their own and if you um, want to get more information about that I have a fantastic resource for you it's called let's talk about talking it is a whopper of a therapy manual as you can see 337 pages and you'll get not only uh, all these 11 skills there but really your therapy plans laid out for you with if a child is, has weakness in this area these are some things that you can do strategy-wise to work on that, and not only for therapists who are looking for that, but also for parents who are trying to do a lot of this work uh, with your own baby at home, regardless of whether the child receives services from a professional or not. So I hope that was great information uh, for you. Again, this really is our crystal ball for those of us who are therapists and who do a lot of evaluations and assessments when we're trying to figure out what's going on with this child and what is this? We look at these 11 skills and we figure out what's missing and then we have a pretty good idea of not only diagnostically what are some possibilities there, but like I said, your treatment plan's already laid out. You know what those areas of weakness are and it doesn't matter diagnostically what we end up calling something or what label a child gets. These are the skills. These are the bedrock foundational pieces that we need to be developing. All right, that's all for today. I'm Laura Mize, pediatric speech-language pathologist, and thank you so much for joining me for Teach Me to Talk's podcast.